This is One More Time, and I am your host, Sean Smith. We have a great episode for you today, but before we get into that, I would like to thank everyone who came up to me during the course of the Midwest Conference and tell me how much they enjoy listening to the podcast. It really makes a difference when you know people are listening, so thank you for that. I also would like to thank the composers who came to the Illinois booth to record for our source material episodes. We had eight composers come, and you will hear their recordings and their pieces over the next couple of episodes. Before we really launch into the episode, I would like to take a second to challenge all of you listeners. I know there are now quite a few of you listening, and right now we have eight ratings on iTunes. I would like to challenge all of our listeners to see if we can get to 25 ratings after this episode. All it takes is you go on to the One More Time page, click the rating that you choose. We would prefer a five, and that's all we're asking. If you could leave a comment, that would make it even better. And let's launch right into our episode. The very first thing we're going to hear today, like always, is from the archives with Scott Schwartz, who is the director of the Sousa Archives and the Center for American Music. He brings us stories of Sousa each episode, and today is no different. On this From the Archives segment, Scott will talk to you about how Sousa treated his musicians. All of you recognize that tune, that's how Capitan, um, written in 1896. Today we're going to talk about Sousa, the conductor, and how he treated the band. The band traveled months at a time, and life was challenging at times. Um, While life on the road for both the members of the Sousa band and Sousa himself, was extremely demanding. Sousa recounted during his 1910-1911 world tour one of these unique situations. He said, Once, while on tour with my band, I was walking on the platform of a railroad station waiting for our train. A very stout lady, much out of breath, rushed up to me evidently noticing I was in uniform, and shouted, What time does the next train go to Brockton? I do not know. Aren't you the conductor? She snapped back. I am, I said quietly, but only of brass bands. And while each of you who hear this story may smile a bit, it gives you a sense that I mean, there was always a humorous twist to what he did. Life on the road was busy. Fred Bears, um, who played sax in the band for its 1923-24 tour, wrote a short poem describing the life of a Sousa band. First you play a concert, then you run and jump a train, stop to get a bite to eat, and then you play a game. Chase around and look for rooms, gee, but life is grand for there's always something to do in the Sousa Band. It really sums up what it was like to travel with the band. It was non-stop energy. After one of the Sousa Band's post-World War I performances, Malcolm Helslip wrote, In his 60s, Sousa conducted a concert that took place one Saturday afternoon in one of the finest concert halls in the United States. He followed a long-standing custom. Invariably, he started playing an encore about 20 seconds after the end of the preceding piece. Audience would still be applauding. At this matinee performance, the conductor responded generously to the call for a highly unusual number of encores during the first half of the program. With three scheduled pieces still to be played, the audience insisted on five encores end-to-end. When the bandmaster raised his baton to start the next scheduled number, he waited for the applause to stop. A moment of complete silence descended on the darkened concert hall. Surprisingly, 
at the precise moment, someone whistled the opening bars of the Washington Post March. The sound came from the highest balcony. An amused murmur rose from the expectant audience. The bandmaster, the governor, as his bandsmen called him, made no change in his posture except a slight nod to his players. He continued to hold his baton high. Only a few musicians changed music on their stands. Souza answered the message from the balcony with the strains of that piece he had penned over 30 years earlier. And the audience reacted spontaneously and broke into a roar of applause that nearly drowned the band's performance out. This was the Souza concert. This was Souza's style. Showman first, great artist, musician, the governor with a sense of humor, who would let things slide when appropriate, but during rehearsals would not. Let's end today with a performance of the Governor's Washington Post March, played by the U.S. Marine Band, the same band that played Al Capitan, and imagine for a brief moment the excitement of being in that audience and watching the March King conduct his masterful work with all the flair, exuberance, and drama that only he could bring to that Today's two-minute rehearsal techniques is given by Chip DeStefano, who is the director at McCracken Middle School. He's going to talk to you a little bit about balance in the ensemble. Even if they haven't read the book, I'd expect that most band directors are pretty familiar with the concept of the pyramid of sound, um, described by Francis Macbeth in his text, Effective Performance of Band Literature. And by focusing on making sure the lower sounding voices are more prominent in the overall band sound, it does help considerably with pitch and balance and blend, of course. But I, I really like to take some time to think about the band as a bunch of mini pyramids, where in the, the third parts are a little bit louder than the second parts, which are a little bit louder than the first part. So the flute section is its own pyramid, the trumpet section is its own pyramid. Um, and to a larger extent, even the choirs are their own pyramids. So that we have a saxophone choir pyramid, and a brass ensemble pyramid, and a woodwind ensemble pyramid. And by making sure that the smaller pyramids are also properly balanced, just has a really dramatic effect on the overall timbre and fullness of the ensemble sound. Additionally, I think there's several times where we don't necessarily want the lowest sounding notes to be the loudest. After all, the melody is the most important voice. It has to be the most predominant at all times. Um, even when it's in the upper woodwinds and brass. So we can deal with this by kind of breaking the band down by the function that they serve with the music. So the melody has its own pyramid, the counter melody has its own pyramid, the accompaniment has its own pyramid. And sometimes the composer doesn't help with this, where they'll give way more people to the upper octave of the melody than the lower octave of the melody. So we have to compensate for this by the way the volumes we ask the, the students to play, or even rewrite some parts and drop kids down an octave if necessary. And then after that, once we've adjusted those balances, we can then make sure that the most important line is the loudest, the second most important line is the second loudest, and so on and so forth. And I think this makes for a really transparent and effective interpretation of what the composer was looking for. Our story today is a little bit different than what we usually offer. It's an interview, and we don't often just present straight interviews. We often weave them into a story. But as I was editing this interview, I was just listening to it, and I thought it was just too good not to present pretty much in full. And so today you're going to hear an interview with Robert Boudreau, 
the founder and music director for the American Wind Symphony Orchestra. If you don't know about this group, it is a group that is most notable, among other things, for commissioning a lot of music, but also for traveling around and playing on a barge that was specifically designed for a performing group to play on as they traveled the country. It is called Counterpoint 2. And this interview was done by Will Sugg. He is a DMA wind conducting student at the University of Illinois. And so you'll hear his voice and you will hear Maestro Boudreau's voice. And the stories that are in this are terrific. Well, I, um, have, a, I have a story for you already then. We had uh, commissioned Hunk Bodings, the Dutch composer. He did a concerto for flute and a really beautiful piece. And Ron Paul came over, John Ron oh, really? Paul, to do the solo work. But we had, prior to that uh, occasion, we had premiered the work with a wonderful young lady flutist who, who just blew the, every note beautifully. Well, when oh, yeah? Bodings was here and Ron Paul started to play it and he was leaving out notes, he said, they're just too many notes. True story. <laughs> he played the piece, but... About half half of the notes. In a, in a very short time, people lose sight of who the composers are. I remember when I went to Juilliard many years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. there were David Diamond, there was Vincent Persichetti, uh, mm-hmm. Norman Lloyd, of course, Bill Schumann, who was president. A lot of composers. You don't find that as much anymore. That's actually one of the things I was going to kind of talk to you about later when we get to it was just, the nature of those relationships and how those may have changed from, you know, back then to now and how that whole environment seems to maybe have changed or if you perceived it to change or anything like that. But well, for instance, if you were, I think one of the most important American composers is Henry Brandt. Henry Brandt? People are going to say, who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I'm not familiar with him either. (laughs) Okay, but you should be. He is really, I think, probably the best American composer we've had. He would do such wonderful things as he would go to Holland, all right? And he'd get musicians on, say, three different boats. And they'd come down the canals. And they'd come to a a point where they all came together. And there was total cacophony, you know, in terms of what was happening (laughs) with sound. And then they'd Mm -hmm. leave. You know, and as they left, the sounds would change. He, he was such a creative guy. He had come here to my home a number of years ago because he did a piece called, and I'll send you the recording, An American oh, Requiem. Uh, and we went out to the barn. I live on a farm. and we, I was a uh-huh. farm boy. And I had a lot of old copper pipes and all kinds of things. Uh, so there's these terrible copper pipes out there. He starts banging them. That's exactly the sound I want, he said. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so you'll hear that in the in the recording. <laughs> the oh, awesome. copper copper tubes. <laughs> Plus <laughs> other you know, other other pipes, etc. Just uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I was over in, in uh Thonia, et cetera, there's a, a wonderful young composer named Kriegel. Then there's this Kaoru water from Japan. Uh there's this uh, Cuban composer now. Uh, who did uh, a wonderful piece for me, uh, Puig Hatem. Uh But you really have to go and pick today. I mean, it, when I was a Fulbright scholar in Paris, we had Messiaen there, you had Cosgrid, oh you had, uh, oh, so many of them. And, mm-hmm. it, yeah, Jolivet was there. I mean, there were just so many. Um, and now, very few. We yeah. were just over there a few, few years ago. Uh, they were doing a uh, Costeret. Do you know the name Jacques Costeret at all? Composer. Uh, I mean, I know. I've heard the name. I, okay. I'm not well, really he had died, and we'd commissioned mm-hmm. him to do about six or seven pieces, and so they invited mm-hmm. us over for this week of tribute oh, to yeah. Costeret. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I was living next to to Lorraine, and I bought an English one. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. uh, what are your questions? Okay. So Dr. Peterson really just wanted us to reach out to a number of individuals like yourself that have just been really significant components of the past 50, 70 years. 
your perceptions of how you felt driven and how you have perceived what it means to be a musician or a band director or whatever kind of position you viewed yourself as and throughout your career, how it may have changed. Did you have about Um, three hours? Yeah, right. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We thought those were pretty broad goals, but, you know. Well, let me me give you a background on who I am. I grew up as a son of a poultry farmer in Massachusetts. I was nine years old, went up to a neighbor's house. They had this old beat-up cornet on the piano, and I started playing. And they showed me mm-hmm. what fingerings. They had a book there, and I played the scale, and they said, the kid's a genius, okay? So <laughs> then when I was 15, I was playing with Rhode Island Philharmonic. I had, oh, okay. Oh, okay. I was doing the, like the Shostakovich piano concerto, that wonderful trumpet solo in there. And then mm-hmm. I went to Boston University, and I was playing in the Boston Brass Quartet. This all has something to do with everything. And and okay. you know you know the music of Gabrielli and Suzato. Uh, sure. Robert King's music, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do you know that at all? Yeah, I, I, the Gabrielli and Cesaro for sure. Okay, well, that's Robert King. And I okay. played in the Boston Brass Quartet with King. He played euphonium. And the two Collie oh. brothers, one played cornet and one played trombone, and I played the other cornet. And mm-hmm. I, so I was, and then I graduated when I was 18. Actually, I majored in poetry. I was, although I was, oh. you know, taking music, but. Uh, I, I decided I wanted to, to to write poetry as well. So anyway, then I went on to Juilliard. And because Robert King called Richard Goldman and said, oh, oh Boudreaux's coming, uh, I got into the Goldman Band. I don't know if you know the oh. Edwin Franco Goldman Band. It oh, yeah. Oh, Central yeah. Park, Prospect Park. Mm-hmm. And that was the time mm-hmm. when the, the New York Philharmonic and the uh, Metropolitan Opera only had 20-week seasons. So... Guess who's okay. playing French horn behind me? Gunther Schuller. Playing oh, man. tuba in the back <laughs> is Bill Bell, you know. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, because they had to eat, wow. too, for 10 weeks. Well, and Goldman Band was 10 weeks. So, yeah. But all these super guys uh, are playing around me, okay? And then uh, I got this offer to be a Fulbright. I don't know if you know this background, but I got an offer to be a Fulbright scholar to go to Paris. And I studied with Sabarich. Okay. I'm a trumpet player I, okay. at the conservatory. And then I came back and had to decide, am I going to be a trumpet player or what? And I decided mm-hmm. I wanted to be a teacher, and my first professorship was at Ithaca College. Frank Other Battisti people. studied trumpet with me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True stories now. Uh, yeah, well, you know, well, this is my life. because. And then uh, there was an opening at uh, to conduct the... Uh, band, marching band at Lehigh University, and uh, okay. I knew nothing about marching, So, but I had these engineers. I said, I'll make the music, you create whatever you have to create on the field. So the first show we did was one for the Statue of Liberty, okay? And they, of course, deal with phosphor- chemical engineers, etc. So they had this phosphorus, they had these suits on, asbestos suits, they came out on the field. And uh, all of a sudden, the field caught fire, okay? Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) The football coaches never talked to me after that. Anyway, just to give you a little bit of history, then there was an opening in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University to head up the wind program and to teach trumpet. Oh, Duquesne, okay. Because I taught, at Ithaca College, I taught trumpet and French horn. At Duquesne, I conducted all the wind groups plus, and... I met a guy by the name of Henry J. Hines II and told him I had this dream about uh, an orchestra, uh, some kind of a wind group. And so I met H. J. Hines II, and he became my first patron. And in okay. 1956, I met Haida Villa Lobos, and this is where everything turned. Uh, and he was living at the Essex House in New York at the time. And mm-hmm. I went to visit with him. He spoke sp- uh, Portuguese and terrible French, and my French was terrible at that time too. Hmm. And his, his, uh, the woman who he lived with came to the door, and, and I went in, and we started talking. And I said, uh, the first thing he said to me, I know right for band. I only oh. write for the winds of the orchestra. And my experience oh. had been with the Goldman Band, etc. Right? Right. 
And so all of a sudden, another window opened up. And here, now the wind orchestra. Only the winds of the orchestra. I had started off with the idea, and, and you'll see, if you see my first instrumentation of the wind symphony, there were six mm-hmm. of everything. Why? Okay. Because of my influence with Bob King, with antiphonal music, the music of uh-huh. the 16th and 15th century. Uh, uh-huh. So I, I sometimes have three oboes, three bassoons, three flutes, etc. on one side and another group on the other side. I commission composers to write sort of antiphonal music. Uh, okay. So anyway, that was the beginning of the Wind Symphony. Villa Lobos was the one who gave me the idea about a wind orchestra. And that's what you'll huh. see today in terms of the instrumentation. You'll right. see four flutes, but you'll see the family flutes. For instance, we will often use, for instance, Caudo Water. That's K-A-R-U. No, K-A-U-R-O. Caudo Water. W-A-D-A. Japanese composer. Wonderful composer. Mm-hmm. Wrote a concerto grosso for me for piccolo, flute, C flute, alto flute, bass flute, and harp. Okay. Oh, okay. That's H A R P because I'm from Boston. Sometimes it's <laughs> right. a hop. Anyway, and right. wind orchestra. So we do we and and then Jacques Castred wrote a, a quartet for me for the oboe family: oboe, oboe de more, English horn, and hecophone. So there's all kinds of variations. Um, when Hovannis wrote the Symphony Number no. Four for me, for instance, uh, mm. I had six clarinets and six flutes and six he was smart enough to just write two parts and the three three people doubled one part and three people doubled another part <laughs> okay so there, yeah and you know we've commissioned now over 450 works and yeah. uh many of them are really good works uh wonderful composers etc anyway yeah. so that that gives you an idea how the wind symphony came about it wasn't some okay. genius in my head it was Villa Lobos, who gave me that idea. So one of the first questions that we were curious about was within when you were younger and when you were overly active, who who were your mentor people that you looked towards when you were growing up and or um, early on in your career? I mean, when I was starting to study seriously? Yes. Okay, there was a guy by the name of George. I was a sophomore in high school. I used to go to Boston. I lived in Bellingham. I get on a train, mm-hmm. and there was a guy by the name of George Marger. He was the first trumpet player of the Boston Symphony, and I studied with him for two years. And they had really fine trumpet players coming in to study with him. The first trumpet player of the Indianapolis Orchestra on Saturday, I would see him coming in for a lesson. So I, I always, and my first teacher that I had when I was nine years old was the original solo cornetist with John Philip Sousa. He was 85 oh. years old when he was teaching me when I was nine. <laughs> but very good training. You know, this guy was, and he was sort of lonesome. So when I'd come for a lesson, I'd be there for two hours because he, it was his sort of a social time as well. But I learned so much from him. And then I was playing in poker bands when I was 13 and 14. And, and then big bands I started playing with. That was a, and we don't have that today anymore. You know, that yeah. was a wonderful education, you know, in playing my yeah. horn. So at the time when you were a young musician, obviously, like Sousa and the Goldman, were there any other people that you noticed as being significant leaders in the band movement? Like people other than those, than the ones that everyone Well, I, guess, I just knew the Goldmans of. pretty much. I mean, without all of these good people around me, I would have, you know, just been anybody. But here was Bob King, who called Goldman, you know, when I was going to Juilliard. Here was, uh, yeah. you know, Izzy Blank sitting next to me. So I get in the Metropolitan Opera. I guess you already mentioned, too, about how you kind of were inspired to create the, the Wind Orchestra concept right. um, with Bill Lobos. Um, so did it feel like it kind of took off pretty quickly, like after you it started did. it? Or it, 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 it did. did very rapidly because there was a wonderful guy at Oberlin, conductor there, and several mm-hmm. others. The only okay. one that, that was very angry with me was Dr. Ravelli because he said, <laughs> oh, really? Client, oh, yeah. He said, face-to-face, he said to me, I was out there auditioning. 
He said, you're trying to destroy the bands. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't trying to destroy anything. I was just trying to make a wind orchestra. And right. Fennell also was, did a, a lot of my music and a real supporter. Mm-hmm. You, you would have thought otherwise, maybe, that he was a little, would be mm-hmm. a little bit annoyed and blah, blah, because he had a wind ensemble. Now, right. the wind ensemble uses saxophones, right? But symphony orchestras don't use it, so I don't have, my music doesn't have saxophones in them. As this episode is published, the University of Illinois will be just starting its second semester coming out of its winter break, and the first concert during which Illinois bands will be part of is the School of Music Mozart Birthday Concert. That is on January 27th, and it starts at 7.30. Among many Mozart pieces, the Wind Symphony Chamber Players will perform excerpts from Don Giovanni. Then, on February 11th, we have our first gathering concert. This is a series of concerts that will appear throughout the semester around the country, celebrating the sesquicentennial of the University of Illinois. These concerts will feature the Wind Symphony, the Illinois Chamber Choir, and they will perform separately and a combined piece. The first of which is Sunday, February 11th, and that is in Symphony Center in Chicago. The concert's at 3 o'clock. The repertoire will include many things, but the highlight is a commissioned piece for both the Wind Symphony and the Chamber Choir called Gathering by composer Dominic DeOrio. And now let's get back to our interview with Robert Boudreau. And I met a guy so, by the name of Edgar Varez, very important guy. Oh, you know yeah. know that name? Oh, you met Varez? You, oh, yeah, I know Edgar Varez. Varez yeah. came to my concerts in Pittsburgh. I oh, did his wow. piece. I did his piece, Ionization. So yeah, I know Ionization. We were very good friends. He lived uh, in New York City, and so hmm. I would visit with him because we were on the on the same level of thinking, Therese and I, in terms of, you know, yes, why not have the percussion so orchestra as a soloist, use them as an orchestra. So we often have pieces which we do. Uh, uh, the Toccata, for instance, by Chavez. Oh, it's a great piece. So often on a program, we'll do just a piece for percussion. Mm-hmm. I might do just ionization or something else like that. Or do mm-hmm. something just for brass. Do some Gabrielli, or there's some wonderful, wonderful pieces written for brass today uh, by Dutch composers and others. Uh, Gunther Schuller wrote a, a wonderful brass piece. So you, it's not just a whole orchestra. Sometimes we play just the brass or the woodwinds. We'll do the Dvorak Serenade or whatever, you know. And would you say that was maybe one of the ways that you would introduce trying to convince composers to write for you all? Is that they were able to essentially do whatever they wanted? Oh, absolutely. You all can make oh, absolutely. I tell them what to do, and then I say, make sure you do what you want to do. I, I, no, you, you have to give them some boundaries. So, yeah, you, you don't know where they are, and you don't know who the good composers are. Now, you have to understand there's another part of my life, okay? Yeah. It's a boat. Okay. (laughs) A floating art center, right? You knew we were the first U.S. flag vessel to go to the Soviet Union. I did not know In 1989, we uh, went down the Neva River and had a week residency in Leningrad. Now, how (laughs) did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen? Okay. I would go down to the Russian embassy and say, Uh this was, say, in 86, 87, I want to play mm-hmm. in in uh, Leningrad. And after a half hour, they would give me some schnapps. They'd say, come upstairs, have some schnapps, and go home. <laughs> okay? Okay. I did that three or four times. I'm not easy to get rid of. So I did it three or four times. Then I'm having a concert in 88 uh, on the Kanawha River in Charleston, West Virginia, in front of the State House. Governor Rockefeller then was governor always like to sit on the boat with the orchestra when we perform. After the concert, we went into the galley and had coffee, okay? And he said, is there anything I can do for you, Robert? And I told him about my meetings in Washington. And he said, would you mind if I call Armin Hammer, chairman of Occidental Petroleum and very good friend of President Gorbachev? <laughs> Three days later, I'm on a plane out to meet him in San Francisco. I mean, just to go, you know, I'm just not, when you think of conducting and whatever, it's not just that, it's so many other things. But anyway, I go out and I meet with him. He was 90 years old then. And Mm -hmm. I tell him my story. 
and <clears throat> I fly back home, and a week later I get a call from the Russian embassy saying, Ben, can you come to Leningrad? He called Gorbachev, and Gorbachev called the Washington embassy and said, I want that boat and that orchestra in Leningrad. That's how things <laughs> wow. happened. Do you have any... you? Did you have any expectation that something like that was going to happen when you were Oh, I always eating? expect it's I mean, going to happen. Wow. I, yeah, I, I always li- <laughs> I live. A, I always believe in the positive. Yeah, and that, we were we uh, went to uh, ten cities in Ireland with the boat. We went up the Seine River. We played in Paris for the French bicentennial. We were in in Stockholm, Sweden, Helsinki, Finland, up to the Rhine River into Dusseldorf. So we were there for two years with the boat in Europe. Yeah, well, it's for instance that. like this. You know, Kathleen, my wife is is my partner in this. And we're, in 1980, setting up a tour in the Caribbean, okay? And we're mm-hmm. in Kingston, Jamaica, and I get a call from the Ministry of Culture from Havana, Cuba, saying, why well, want you to come to Havana? Totally illegal. You go to jail, right? <laughs> I was going to say, wait. No, it's true. That's when <laughs> yeah. you... And so I got on a Cuban airline in Kingston, flew to Havana, spent a whole wonderful week there, uh, developed wonderful relationships with painters, artists, all kinds of musicians, composers, etc. And then flew back. The guy said, I can't stamp your passport because if I do, you're going to jail when you go home. So we just flew back to <laughs> Kingston and nobody ever knew I was in Cuba. <laughs> just, just a little aside. Wow. Yeah, just, I have a license yeah. now. I don't need it from, with President Obama, but I, I do have a State Department, so I go back and forth. This was the first uh-huh. year because of President Obama that I was able to have 10 Cuban musicians. I went to Havana three months or five months or 10 months ago. I don't remember how long ago. And I had 51 musicians audition for me in one afternoon from Cuba. And I don't know know his name, Leo Brower, very famous guitarist, composer, Cuban. And he sat next to me, and he wrote a piece for me. I had gone, when I was going to go to Europe, I wanted to include musicians from the Americas. And uh, I started uh, auditioning musicians. Uh, I went to uh, uh, Colombia, Bogota, and there was this wonderful French horn player, a young fellow named Luis Perez. And I said, who do you study with? He said, I've never heard a horn teacher. Now he's playing principal now with a Bogota. He said, I only have had a drunken clarinet teacher. And then I was auditioning a trumpet player in Haiti and some from other countries, Nicaragua, etc. And so mm-hmm. I brought 12 musicians, young musicians. I, first of all, I went to the presidents of Duquesne, Carnegie, and Pitt and said, look, if I bring these young musicians up here, will you teach them? And they all agreed they would. There would be no mm-hmm. charge. I said, I'll house them and clothe them and feed them. I had a big house, Stephen Foster House, where they all lived. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They all got degrees. The the English horn player now in the Metropolitan Opera was one of these people. One of the hmm. percussion teachers at Curtis was one of these people. So anyway, oh, really? Leo Brower heard about this. Yeah, and somebody in Minneapolis also. Uh, a number of them. Uh, anyway, Leo Brower heard about this, and one day in the mail, I received this composition called Cancion de Hesta. And he said, I'm sending you this gift for what you have done for my brothers and sisters. So that's, that's how awesome. I got to know him. So you see all these crazy ties. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not normal. You no. might put at the top a very abnormal person. <laughs> Having all the right people at the right time holding his hand. That's all the difference. Incredible. Yeah. Well, given the nature of those experiences, I mean, the, the next question was kind of supposed to be, you know, what kind of advice would you give to a young learning conductor or teacher or based on those experiences you've had, is there any specific advice you would give them? Dream. One <laughs> word, dream. And don't give up. Don't give up. If you've got a, a vision of what you want to do, no matter what happens, keep after it. No matter how hard, keep after it. My boat now is in Ottawa, and it was done by, mm-hmm. you know the name Louis Kahn, very famous architect. And he mm-hmm. he was the architect for my boat. And mm-hmm. you can look him up. He did the capital city of Bangladesh, et cetera. Anyway, the boat is now going to be moved down to New Orleans, where it's going to go into a big shipyard and all repainted, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then going to mm-hmm. a town called Pahokee. Now, how did this all happen? Yo-Yo Ma heard that I was going to scrap this boat. And all of a sudden, took up the cudgel of, 
There was a big article in the Wall Street Journal. Yo, yo, ma, we've got to save this boat. Uh, <laughs> oh. I mean, you, uh, why this would yo, yo, ma do this, right? <laughs> and uh, so out of all of this, this one fellow who owns, they call Cruise America, saw this article. He's out of West Palm Beach. And he was on the boat with me last two weeks ago up in Ottawa, Illinois, walking the boat and said, this boat has got to come to Pahokee on Lake Okeechobee. Mm -hmm. Pahokee is 95% of color. From the time when I was a little boy reading Booker T. Washington, this has been my primary goal, to work with my brothers and sisters of color. This is very the most, maybe the most important part of my life. Mm -hmm. So now I'm getting involved with setting up, like I did in Pittsburgh, I hired nine teachers Okay, nine, flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, etc. cetera. Uh, I went into yeah. eight school districts. This is important. Winds on the, called Winds on the Mon, the Monongahela River. And we had eight school yeah. districts. These teachers would go in like 8 to 10 in the morning, have four students each. We mm -hmm. had 32 bassoon students, 32 <laughs> French horn students. And when I auditioned at Oberlin back in the beginning, 60 years ago, they had 28 bassoon students. Today they have two at Duquesne University, they have none. So mm. when these young people, and they're getting private lessons twice a week, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up as a kid, if I had a lesson on Saturday, I'd stop practicing on Thursday, right? So I figured, oh, how? Yeah, we'll have two exactly. lessons a week, Mondays and Thursdays <laughs> and Tuesdays and Fridays. And they grew so fast. And then they played yeah. chamber music. We had a lot of chamber music performance with it. When they got through, over 50%, now 60% of them were of color, but over 50% of them were getting free scholarships at Michigan, Eastman, Colgate, Baylor, etc. Because they need bassoons. Today, uh, the University of Maryland is offering full scholarship plus $7,500 for a bassoonist. So what my task is now is to go into this poor area, 35% unemployment. It's just a few miles from West Palm Beach, one of the wealthiest places in, in Florida. And my hope is that I'm going to be able to have that same kind of a program there so I can get these young kids yeah. to get into college, et cetera. So that's, that's my job is to try to give hope to these kids now. It's a gift to me. It's not what I'm doing <laughs> for them. They're giving me a gift. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all you do is have to have the luck. You know, I just had a lot of luck. I mean, how the hell did I ever stop playing with the Boston Brass Quartet? I mean, he was my best of all the teachers. Bob King was my best teacher. He taught me more without, without teaching me. Do you understand what I mean? Just by the experience of playing with the Brass and Brass Quartet. Sure. I learned more about music than you can imagine because he was so remarkable, so remarkable. But, you know, I was just lucky. I fell into it. I went to Boston University, and there I was. If I had gone somewhere else, I wouldn't have had that experience. I may not have done any of the things that I'm doing today. It's always that yeah. step. You never know what that step is. If I hadn't come to Duquesne University, I had an office to go other places. The dream would have never been. There wouldn't have been 450 pieces. That's how fragile life is. You mentioned, just as an aside, people just tended to send you send you commissions or pieces on occasion. Like, was there a like, how did you do a call for scores or anything like that? No, 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 no. So no, no, I always no, no, I always ask people to write for me. Like Ned Rohrm, <laughs> he wrote a symphonia for me for smaller group. Uh, no, <laughs> I I always ask. They don't just write. Uh, this this fellow called me and you know he had a piece there, but no, normally I just <laughs> I will contact person and say I want you to write a piece. They don't come over. They okay. don't just come through the mail. Did you? How did you happen to decide who you were going to ask? Because, I mean, that's a lot of people, a lot of permissions. For, I mean, was it well, just people you had heard of? I would listen to composers. Also, we would have, uh, with the boat now, think of it as, a, you know, it, mm -hmm. it travels a lot. I also mm -hmm. happened, my wife and I decided when we got this new boat that we didn't mm -hmm. really want strangers on there as captains, etc. So I went okay. to get, I got a Coast Guard license as the master. So I pilot the boat okay. as well. And she's I think my I've first seen, mate. Yeah. She has a thousand ton license, so. But anyway, so what we do is have festivals, like I had an Israeli festival. Well, that meant I had to contact Israeli composers. Or I had a Czechoslovak okay. festival, and so I had to focus on that. 
or a Japanese festival with uh, Mayuzumi, and you know. Mm-hmm. So it's always been these a Swedish festival. So I get composers from Sweden. That's how I focused a lot. Had a okay. Canadian festival. Um, and then, um, <clears throat> what would you say? And this is more of a, I guess, maybe a teacher. Um, from your perspective as a teacher, what do you value most as a musician? Well, I love my music. You know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. you can't do this for 60 years without loving your music. Your, your music. But mm-hmm. I, 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 just for instance, in clarinets, Elsa Ludwig, I don't know if you know mm-hmm. that name. She was a teacher at Michigan State. She came to me when she was 19 from Eastman. Oh, Larry okay. Combs principal of the Chicago Symphony, played with me when he was 19. Dale Clevenger, the French horn person at Chicago, Mm -hmm. played with me when he was 19. There's a friendship that develops with these people and with my composers. Mm -hmm. I guess number one would be my wife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good answer. (laughs) And that's not just because she's sitting here either. No, but that's true. She's, you know, you need a friend. And she's been mm-hmm. more than just a wife. She's been my friend and, and makes, makes, makes it all. I don't anything about, uh, I can type, but typing is no longer any good. She does all my electronic stuff. You know, I don't do okay. any of that stuff. I figure learning scores is bad enough. So yeah. she, she's really the heart of, of, of what happens. She, you know, tomorrow yeah. morning we'll go up and we'll be, she'll be sitting at the computer doing things that I ask her to do. But but I guess my musicians, composers, they're, they're my life. Is there a work or a composer among all of the commissions that you've done that stands out as maybe either a favorite for you or most significant or even more so one that you feel like is awesome but maybe doesn't get played as much? Henry Brandt. That you would like to see played? The Henry Brandt? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you said he wrote that American five of them. They're about five. And Ivana Ludova from Czechoslovakia, L-O-U-D-O-V-A. I had gone there when the Russians were still in control of Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. and were, was only allowed three days to be there. And I was meeting with Lubis Fischer and a number of other composers there. Mm-hmm. And I overstayed my thing for five or six hours or so. When I came to the border, I, was, I had bought mm-hmm. a car over there and I was driving out. They stopped me and they said, you owe us $5 or something for staying over. And... <laughs> guy came out in a big, big coat, big Russian, and I said, mm-hmm. I'm not going to pay you. Done my things, so I'm not going to pay you. Kathleen kept saying, pay him, pay him, let's get out of here. <laughs> so he walked back into his station, and uh, I, what happened was, uh, Lubis Fischer, one of the composers we commissioned, his father was an architect, okay, and had sent some mm-hmm. plans over to Austria, and the Russians were trying to get his father to pay a big reward for having sold those plans over there. And so Lubis said, can you help? And I said, I'll try. So he gave me a set of plans, and I threw them in the, over the back seat of the car, okay, so to make them very mm-hmm. evident, so not try to hide anything. So when I was right. going through the border, with the idea that I was going to send them back to Czechoslovakia, to his dad, so the, uh-huh. uh, the, he could then say they didn't want my plans, okay? So he didn't have to pay this enormous kind of thing. So there right. I am with these plans in the back of my car, telling this guy I'm not going to pay him five bucks or whatever. <laughs> so finally Jeez. he came out. He said, go. And so that was it. I never did pay the uh-huh. five bucks. Anyway, <laughs> just a few of the little asides, right? For those of you who were fortunate enough to attend the CBDNA National Conference last year, you heard our source material piece in its premiere. Our source material segment today features Cyclotron by David Biedenbender. As with many of the upcoming source material episodes, there's going to be a bit of background noise when you hear the composer talking because these recordings were done at Midwest in the exhibit hall. So please excuse any of the errant sounds you might hear in the background as the composer speaks. We'll just consider it part of the charm of these upcoming segments. (laughs) 
Cyclotron was commissioned by Kevin Sedatol. I joined the faculty at Michigan State University last year, and when I signed my contract, Kevin said, hey, we're going to play at CBDNA. Will you write us a, a new piece? And uh, I said, I'd love to. So I started sketching ideas and was working throughout the summer. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of figure out was what is something that, that Michigan State is known for? What's like something that happens on campus that's really interesting outside of the music program? And I discovered that Michigan State has one of the top nuclear science research programs in the world. They have this amazing facility where they smash atoms together at half the speed of light and run these great experiments. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. So I went and got a tour of the facility. And the cyclotron, which is one of the instruments they use to do these experiments, seemed like a really interesting kind of conceptual space for music because inside the cyclotron, all of these collisions happen These on an, on an atomic level. So the molecules collide with each other. They experience things like time dilation, which is where time speeds up and slows down. And I like this idea, this kind of playful take on science in the sense that some of the things that happen in science are so strange, like when you actually look at the way the world works. So it was kind of a cool conceptual space to dive into because it's almost like a fantasy. It's almost like something that's unreal. And to me, it, it elicited sort of musical space a playful musical space to, to exist in. The piece is built on this idea of time speeding up and slowing down. It's built on collisions. It's built on, I use uh, tuning of the harmonic series, so lots of big major chords that then continue on up into the, the rest of the harmonic series um, and tune specifically to the harmonic series. And I thought that kind of elicited or evoked a resonance, a certain resonance. And so the piece is kind of built on those conceptual ideas and then out of it, I kind of play with them in different ways. a few of my students, uh, saxophonists, um, doing multiphonics and some other strange sounds and that kind of became the initial seeds for the piece because they kind of evoked like this machine playing around with sound and these um, tunings of the harmonic series and ma manipulating them electronically. And that's, that's kind of how the piece got started. Actually, formally it's sort of an ABA form. It starts like loud and aggressive and there's these air sounds and multiphonics and banging percussion kind of explosion music and then these huge sweeping arpeggiations of the harmonic series. It's really, it's a very concise piece for me in the sense that the material is kind of it's just time speeding up and slowing down and the harmonic series. That's like the whole piece. So it's kind of thematic in that sense. You know? At the very beginning, there's this drum burst, and the idea is that you hear these bursts and they slow down. It's like all kind of unified in that it's speeding up and slowing down. The other thing that I play around a lot with are these quick swells. I, I wanted to sort of evoke this, this feeling or this sound of time going in reverse. So I use these swells at the beginning and they're just kind of there. But eventually they start to have a more prominent role. So um, I orchestrate it a lot in the, uh, in the trumpets with mutes in and then also in the clarinets. These swells like around measure 43, the kind of cumulative effect of them is that the music is like sort of playing in reverse. Fourteen, for example, that's kind of the first big arrival in the piece. Like the timpani, for example, is one of the most prominent voices here, even though it doesn't look like it. The brass is the most prominent in terms of that's like the thing I think people will hear is the, the most prominent thing. But the timpani sort of creates this pulse, and you think it's anchored. You think it's consistent, but it's not. And, and what happens is it speeds up, and then it starts to slow down again. In the middle, I sort of slow everything down, and for me, I imagine that everything's kind of in slow motion. So it's this, the harmonic series stuff, but much, much more slow.
I use the idea of time dilation a few different ways. It's in that middle section. The One of the primary rhythmic gestures is this thing that speeds up and slows down. And I do that just with like table of time, you know, quicker note values coming from slower. And then I sort of come back to that material. Not, it's not really ABA strictly, because I come back to it via a really long transition, and then when I recap, it's sort of an A prime, I guess, because it's different than the first time. I will say that like in the rehearsal process, it is textural, but it's specific. Things are supposed to line up in a certain way. There's a lot of the piece that almost sounds aleatoric because it's kind of chaotic, but it does align in a very specific way. A lot of these uh, rising arpeggiated gestures are actually canons, and so one voice will start and then another voice will start, and sometimes they go start slower and go faster, but those canons to me are really important that they align in a specific way. So it sounds a little chaotic, but to me it sounds very much like an organized chaos. When the canons happen, like sometimes the canons is kind of like a temporal canon where something will repeat, but it won't necessarily be the exact same rhythmic value. So it might repeat, but it might be twice as fast or a third as fast. In terms of like what's most important in a lot of these textures, there isn't really a hierarchy in the sense. I mean, this textural thing, these arpeggiations are Interestingly enough, the cyclotron doesn't really make sound. Um, and the experiments are taking place. If it did, this is what I think it would sound like. And the experiments themselves are taking are taking place on the subatomic level. Like there's no there's no sound, uh, you know, really that the, that the machine makes other than the hum of the tremendous amount of electricity that it takes. There are many band and music podcasts out there available for all of you to listen to. And every month, One More Time is going to start highlighting some of those that we find really, truly interesting. And the first one we're going to highlight is run by Mark Connor, and his podcast is called The Everything Band Podcast. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. And if you could tell us a bit about your podcast. So the podcast is called Everything Band, and it's it's the subtitle is Conversations with Composers, Conductors, and Performers of Music for Winds and Percussion. But really what I do with it and how it's sort of evolved over the, the course of the last 45 episodes is to be interviews and conversations with leaders in the band community, be that uh, concert band or marching band or... Um, or retail, whatever aspect of the of the of the world, I can I can get people to talk to me from, just to give some insight into what their careers have been like, maybe what's made them successful, maybe tips that they have. Just trying to get to something deep about them. Awesome. How did you come up with the idea for your podcast? Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I listen to one, two in particular that really struck me. One is. Um, called The Portfolio Composer. It's by Garrett Hope. And um, he interviews composers, and he interviews them from a business point of view. So his premise is that composers are business people. And so he started out his interviews not that way. He started them out more like compositional focused. And then there's another podcast by Andrew Hitz called The Entrepreneurial Musician that's similar. It's also interviews. And he has another one called The Brass Junkies that he does with Lance LaDuke that's also similar where they interview people. And I really like that format. I like to get to know these people who were my childhood heroes or who were colleagues who I look up to or people who are doing cool things because I want to know more about them because I, I see it as a reflection of what I'm trying to do with my career. That's really interesting. Um, can you tell us some of the people you've had on your podcast? It's a good question. I've had 45 guests on so far, and I started with John Pasternak way back in last last March. John's a young composer up and coming from uh, RWS Music and uh, Carl Fisher. He's really great. And then it just kind of grew from there. I've had such great people. I had um, Mark Stickney has been on, Demandre Thurman, the euphonium player, has been on, uh, Cynthia Johnson-Turner. I'm just kind of looking down the list. Michael Colburn, the former director of the President's Own. One of my best interviews, one of my most interesting interviews, is way back in July, I interviewed Patrick Vandehey from uh, Portland State University, a longtime Oregon band director, one of the, um, the great names in that state. Um, let's see, who else have I had? Tiffany Hitz, a, a dynamic 
uh, middle school band director in Fairfax County, Virginia has been on. Um, Jerry Junkin has been on the show. Uh, he was in September. A lot of composers, too. Um, Chris Bernatas, um, Andrew Boyson, uh, Johan DeMay, uh, um, Pete Meekins coming on an upcoming episode. Uh, let's see who else. Uh, Joe Parisi from UMKC. Um, uh, John Southall, who just won the, the Medal of Honor for Midwest. So that's just a few of the names, but it's been really great. And I'm, I'm just so honored that these people have, have agreed to talk to me. And, and part of what I think makes the show special is that access, is that I'm able to reach out and people, are, people agree to be on. And what would be your favorite episode of your podcast? What I would call the hook episode that's going to make everyone want to come back and listen. Well, I have, a, I have a couple that I really like. I forgot to mention that um, one of my great coups of the early part of my podcast is that I managed to get the conductor Jerry Schwartz on. And um, your listeners may know Jerry Schwartz started his career as a principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic before moving on to become the conductor of the Seattle Symphony. And um, he actually is the conductor at the Eastern Music Festival in North Carolina. And I know him through my wife, who's a cellist at that festival. And so he came on the show, and it's not necessarily band-related, but he is just such a wonderful musician that there's a lot there. Um, I really, really like a couple of episodes. The Pat Vandehe episode is really great, the John Southall episode. But it's really hard to say. My most popular episode is actually surprisingly, not surprisingly, she's amazing, is Tiffany Hits. Can you give us a quick preview of who's going to be coming on your podcast soon? Yeah, so I have a couple names coming up. I just interviewed Pete Meekin, the the band and uh, brass band composer who's uh, British but now living in Canada. Walter Cummings is my next episode. Walter is the owner and he's a composer and the owner of Grand Mesa Music, the company that has um, sort of survived in a, in a world of giants in the publishing industry. I want to thank Mark for coming on and telling us a bit about everything band and I hope you will listen to his podcast. We're recording me check in the Southwest Airlines. <laughs> Don't put this on the air. Oh no, that's definitely going in. As we finish out our episode, today's rehearsal peak is a little different than what we normally offer. This group is not a University of Illinois collegiate band. It is the All-Illinois Junior Band. This group is made up of junior high middle school students from around the state, and they come together for two days each winter to present a concert. This year, they were led by Dr. Andrew Boysen Jr., who you may know as a composer, but is also a terrific conductor and educator. The piece you will hear is his symphony number no. four.
producer of today's show is Sean Smith and the co-producer is Stephen Cohn. The editing, mixing, recording of interviews, and various other tasks were completed by Sam Litt and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of the Illinois Band's faculty. Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois, and that is in the College of Fine and Applied Arts. 